something happens externally from your business that affects your business at least four times a year. So if you don't know something that is impacting your customer you're not paying attention. at least four times a year, then you're not in touch. Yeah. Welcome back to Speaker Series Rewind, a podcast by High Alpha, a venture studio that builds and designs B2B SaaS startups. In this show, we revisit discussions from High Alpha Speaker Series, a monthly event series that features industry leaders, successful entrepreneurs, and investors. For our very first season, we'll be joined by founders and CEOs across the country running everything from B2B software startups to international airports. In today's episode, we're joined by Julie Lyle, former CMO at Walmart and the current CEO and founder of Zytara. This episode actually aired in February of 2020, which at the time, Zytara was still in stealth mode as a new business but has now has come out of stealth mode as a digital banking platform and payment network. Julie's background and experience, though, is just incredible in the marketing and in revenue space. I'll just list off a handful of the companies where she's been CMO, CCO, or CRO, Walmart, Prudential, HH Gregg, Barnes & Noble, Raytheon, and many startups as well. And so this episode is just chock full of learnings and insights around building startups and growing and scaling teams. She went in depth on her experience leading Walmart's global expansion and how to navigate the politics of business at an organization that large. And really dove into just the, the importance of data-backed decision-making as an executive leader. So without further ado, let's dive into the episode with Julie Lyle. Today's our 44th speaker series, which is pretty remarkable. We are really proud of what we've built with this particular series and just the pedigree and the quality of the folks that have been kind enough to make the trip and visit with us. We have had everything from venture capitalists, tech entrepreneurs, executives from Fortune 500 companies, governors, politicians of all stripes, people in economic development, et cetera, et cetera. And, and given our background collectively at High Alpha, for sure, in technology, I can say that through 44 speaker series, our guest today may have the deepest, most expansive background at the intersection of retail, marketing, revenue, technology. We're in for a real treat. Julie Lyle is with us today. And she makes her home in Indy, but as she noted to me earlier, spends uh, a disproportionate amount of her time on airplanes. She has occupied many C-level positions, commercialization officer, revenue officer, CMO at some of the biggest, most important companies in the world. Walmart, which is a proud Arkansan, that warms my heart to hear about that. Raytheon, H.H. Gregg, but she doesn't just spend time at big companies. She, she works with and in startups as well. As a matter of fact, work with Demand Jump here in Indianapolis for some time that many of you all know. She is an advisor to the World Economic Forum on the Advancement of Women and has a real heart for helping folks get to the next level and paying it forward and looking forward to chatting at some length about that. So let's start, as is our tradition, at the very beginning. Like, where are you from? Where were you born? And, uh, and maybe pick up from that and give us a little bit of maybe even pre-professional background on you. Where am I from is always the most difficult question for me because I've moved around throughout my entire life. I was actually born in Brazil, in Rio. My father was with the State Department. And so I lived there until I was young, about 11 years old, came to the States. I was naturalized. So I still have dual citizenship. 
But once we got to the States, I lived very much a military brat type life where you move every, I don't know, 14 months or something. One of the typical conversations around our dinner table was how many times have you moved in the last three years? Those kinds of conversations happened all the time. So I'd done that all of my life as a child. Even in Brazil, we lived in Panama and we moved all throughout South Central America growing up. And then I went off to school in New Orleans and I went to a brief stint for partial law school in Virginia. And then my career just kept me moving around. How, so did, you, how did you wind up at Tulane? They offered me the biggest scholarship for law school. Wow. And I had narrowed the field to Wake Forest, Vanderbilt, or Tulane, and they gave me the most money. And I was at that point, my parents had divorced. And so I was the product of a single mom with three kids. Yeah. And the whole loan grant package was important, scholarship that was, it mattered. At, that, at the point prior to heading off to college, did you have a sense for what you wanted to do? Oh, yes. I absolutely was going to be an international contract attorney. No question. And I had wanted to do that for from maybe seventh grade on. You're being serious. I'm very serious. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I went to Tulane, and then I did a brief stint. I had a, a great scholarship, had performed very well, and started school at University of Virginia. And because of my academics, they required that I not work while I was in school. And I couldn't afford not to work. Hmm. So I worked. And they caught me at the end of the first semester. And they invited me to leave. <laughs> so, I, well, I either had to quit. Wow. I had to quit one or the other. Okay. And so I had to leave law school. I didn't have the money to finish. And I went and got a, a marketing job. It was really an inside sales job. They called it a marketing job. Mm-hmm. But I had no, I had no intention of getting into sales or marketing. I just needed to pay the rent. But they gave me a little headset, put me in a cubicle with a cold call sheet. And that was the beginning of my career. Where was that? Dallas, Texas. So you were in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. and you found a job in Texas, or you moved to Texas and found a job? I found a job in Texas. Okay. All right. What was the nature of what you were showing? Well, I think this is interesting. I was selling polyisocyanurate foam insulation, Ooh. which is... As sexy as international contract law. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sheeting for commercial construction. Huh. The insulation that you put around buildings. There weren't a lot of women in selling manufactured building materials at the time okay. to lumber yards, so it was a, a rude awakening. But what was interesting was I actually was working, that company was called RMAX, and I was working in one division of what was effectively a, a venture capital company, a holding company. And the gentleman who had that company had been one of the founders of EDS with Ross Perot, Mitch Hart, and the Hart Group was the holding company that I worked for. And I worked my way up very quickly. And within probably 18 months, I had taken a role as head of marketing, advertising, and PR for the, the holding company. So I functionally reported to each of the CEOs. From the time you, you got the cold call job to the time you ran marketing for the whole enterprise. Yeah, that's remarkable. He, and to be fair, he was one of the founders of the Young Presidents Organization. Yeah. And I think he had seen, he'd seen some potential with me and had thought that he would mentor me along. And I had done really well. I mean, I had opened up new channels for us. I'd opened up international for us. I'd opened up wholesale for us. So, and we, such that we could sell the company. We were able to sell the company. But what was very good for me at a young age, and I think I would encourage you all to, to think about this, is because I functionally reported to each of those CEOs, but administratively, my boss was the chairman of the board and the founder I had to learn how to navigate those delicate relationships Mm. very early Mm. at a young age. I had to know that those CEOs needed me to be their 
confidant and right arm because I was handling all of their personal as well as professional branding. But at the same time, they knew that their sister companies, and there's always a little sibling rivalry, that I had their ear as well. Hmm. And at the end of the day, his boss was my boss. Hmm. So I had the big guy's ear. And man, learning how to manage those negotiations and those meetings and those tough conversations was very important. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it, that is not unique to big companies, although it looks a little different. I think having the skill and the emotional intelligence to navigate, we can just call it politics, I guess, mm-hmm. but the politics of business, even in small companies, where actually, frankly, where there's less places to hide can sometimes Absolutely. be equally as challenging. So you, in a very short order, ascended through this organization in Dallas. What prompted you to leave? Because of the role I was in, I, was, I participated in all the board meetings. And I saw a market opportunity based on some trends that were happening in the industry. And I wrote a business plan for one of the board members. Hmm. And he bought into it. So he funded the business. And I left to start a company. And I was so naive that I didn't negotiate any equity. And we were netting about $90,000 a month inside of four months. And I went back and said, I want a piece of this. And I was convinced he would say, by gosh, you certainly deserve that. And instead he said, no. And I said, really? You wouldn't just give me half of this? It was my idea. But he said, no, I won't. What was the nature of that business? It was an outdoor advertising company. Oh, okay. Also based in Dallas? Yes. The offices were based, the headquarters was there, but it was nationwide. And so when he wouldn't, after the fact, give me equity, I decided to start something of my own. So I left there after about five months and started my own business. And, what, and tell us about that. It was a marketing consultancy. Dan Quayle was just putting the finishing touches on the internet and uh, tells you how old I am. But we were doing new business development, new product development, new market launch. And at that time, companies were really just trying to figure out how to leverage the internet to market themselves. Yeah. And so we were consultants to companies like American Airlines and JCPenney's and others. Mm-hmm. And I built that business, ran that business for 11 years, and then sold it to a company called Gleason Calise, which flipped it to Leo Burnett. That's cool. That's, and how old are you at this point? No, I don't mean this point, although you can <laughs> feel free to share that too. But oh, it's, Unfortunately, um, it's public knowledge when you work for those public When you sold your first company? I sold my first company. I was 35 years old. Hmm. Hmm. Okay, and then at some point, your career begins to vector toward, frankly, retail, right? What was the on-ramp for that? At first, I, when I sold the business, Walmart had called me and wanted me to come to work for them. And at the time, I was not willing to go to Bentonville. And that was a requirement of the role. And so I, t- I said no. And I accepted instead the chief commercial officer role for Raytheon. Hmm. They were trying to build a commercial services division because defense was in really in, uh, circling the drain at that yeah. time. And so my role was to build the commercial services division, but to effectively take services and technology and platforms that they were using on the defense side of the house mm-hmm. and frankly dummy them down yeah. and package them for sale in the commercial or enterprise environments. And I built that business for, for three and a half years, and 9-11 hit, and we went from the jewel in the crown to a rounding error, yeah. and uh, Walmart called again, wow. and I said, okay, I'll come to Arkansas. No kidding. So did you, and what was the role they offered you at that time? It was vice president of international, rela- in, uh, vice president of international marketing. Okay. 
How long were you with Walmart in total? Six and a half years. Okay. And you did ascend to the kind of terminal marketing role in that business. I mean, you got to tell us a little bit about what that was like. When I started with international, I started on the international side of the house. And it was very much like many companies, the way Walmart was handling international. International was the stepchild of the business. They wanted to get into it, but they weren't quite sure how to do it. So they were doing it largely by acquisition. There was some greenfield growth, but largely by acquisition. They really didn't understand how to manage the, the whole brand portfolio and how to integrate branding and culture across across different countries and different platforms. Many people don't realize that outside the U.S., Walmart, and at least at the time I was there, and it's still to some degree the case, Walmart operated everything from high-end grocery stores to low-end bodegas, mark open what we call wet markets, to Mexican restaurants, train station convenience stores. The portfolio is very diverse outside the U.S., and so they, they really didn't have the expertise to know how to manage the cultural differences internationally. They also didn't have financial services. And marketing at Walmart at that time, because it was such a product-driven company, was the merchant would say, here's a, a box of bedding sheets. Take a picture of it, put it on a flyer. And by the way, once you're done with that, make a disc of it, send it over to International, tell them to translate it and, mm-hmm. then, and, and run it everywhere else in the world. And I'm not exaggerating very much about wow. that. The whole cultural sensitivity thing was, it was very new for most American companies, really. And so that was my role, was to help them really understand how to navigate these seas, when mm-hmm. to put the Walmart stamp on the front of the building and when not to, when to leave the, the local branding in place or a hybrid thereof how to make those transitions when you do make those transitions. Was that international expansion through that myriad portfolio, was that happening through acquisition? Largely through acquisition. And typically what Walmart would do is they would start a market by acquisition and then they might introduce a new format as a greenfield within that market once there was enough infrastructure to support their distribution strengths and information systems. So it was managing all of that. Plus, then I started to launch their their financial services for them globally and integrate their IT outside of the United States and create an e-commerce offering. And so at at the two-year mark, it was literally to the day, they called me in and said, we want to have you do what you're doing for international for the global business. And that's when they put me in. That is... Again, I'm I'm a little starstruck just because I grew. I don't. That was the Eli Lilly of Arkansas for me, and in a company that was, that knew how to market. Quite frankly, at least domestically, it sounds like they had some challenges before you showed up internationally. What were some of the unique kind of challenges you faced operating in a business that's operating at that scale? It's. I think there was. There's lots of folklore around Walmart and how they. Uh, used to isolate employees from vendors in Bentonville and not have vendors socialize with employees, mm-hmm. etc. A lot of that is really did happen. And I think it was very wise that they did that. And I used to say when I was there, because I had started on the international side, I used to recommend strongly that the merchants in the U.S. business be required to do a six-month tour of duty in one of our lesser markets like Germany or Korea or some, somewhere like that. So they could understand what it was like to, to not be the 300-pound gorilla at the table yeah. when you're doing negotiations all the time. I think to answer your question, you had to be, you had to remain humble and you had to, if you were going to be successful, and you had to remember that it was, velocity is what 
led to Walmart's success and scale. And that it's a lot of little transactions and a lot of little vendors that grow big and a lot of little stores that create a big chain. And I think it was important to maintain that mentality because, especially in international, some of the decisions that I would make even, we would shift an economy. And you had to know that when you made a certain decision, potentially 50,000 people would be laid off. You would reabsorb them in six months, but you had to understand that the disruption you were causing and that I used to like to tell people, remind them, that we don't have the, the right to sit at this executive table and make cavalier decisions and be wrong because we're wa- going mm. off of gut instinct mm. and not off of data. Mm. We have a responsibility to the people who ultimately, when we make a bad decision, we call the COO and say, hey, go lay off 400 people mm. at the store. Mm. And those people pull their kids out of private school or they can't make their mortgage payment or their car gets repossessed. And we have a responsibility to remember that and, and take it very seriously. Do you, you, you feel that was something that was understood kind of system-wide at Walmart? Or was that kind of emergent thinking during the time you were there? That kind of thinking is down to the person. Some people got it yeah. and had it long before I got there. Some people had lost it along the way. Yeah. Some people brought it with them when they came. I think it's down to the individual uh, how much they do or don't get caught up in their role or their title. I was one of um, only three people at Walmart. When I used to travel or go to trade shows, I traveled under I, I traveled under uh, a surname, and I had business cards and badges and credit cards that said Benchmark Realty. No kidding. Just to not be. It's hard for a generation that grew up with Amazon being the predominant resale force to remember just how big just how big Walmart was. I mean, there was one point where they were the largest employer outside of the federal government, I think. We had a million four hundred thousand employees when I was there. Yeah. And I think they're at about a million seven now. Holy smokes. Yeah, it's remarkable. Okay, so thank you for indulging my Arkansas mm-hmm. my, my Walmart questions. So what happened after Walmart? We'll have to go back to Arkansas and you're gonna have to still explain to me six and a half years and I don't understand why people eat French toast on a stick. Okay. But um, <laughs> I just don't get it. I just never did get it. But after Walmart, the gentleman who had been, I left Walmart because my mother was ill and I went and took care of her bedside until she passed. Mm-hmm. But the gentleman who had been the CEO of Sam's Club had been tapped by a private equity firm, Sun Capital, to run Shopco, Mida. It was two chains that had been consolidated and our task was to deconsolidate them and position them to flip. And so I became, he, he tapped me to be his chief merchant, chief marketing officer for that. Okay. Where was that based? In, in Omaha, Nebraska. Really? I used to say From Omaha. It just sounds Omaha. warmer. That's funny. So what, I guess, uh, uh, there's some other things I'd like to get to, and if I gloss over any part of your story that you want to come back to, please just interject. As we were talking to some of the folks here about what they'd love to learn from your experience, one of them was advice to very young companies in navigating these kind of larger marquee customers. So rather it's uh, Raytheon or Walmart or H.H. Gregg or Barnes & Noble, like having been on both sides of the table, what's your advice on how to get into relationship, maintain relationship? What is it that they're, what's the gotchas that the big co's are looking for when interacting with, with startups? You mentioned politics are alive and well 
And it doesn't really matter what the culture of any organization is, no matter how healthy the culture is. And, and that's it's a subjective evaluation, right? Culture means one thing to one person and another to another. But politics are alive and well and happen in living organisms, which is what enterprise is, no matter how big or small. And, and understanding the agenda of the business and the agenda and the mindset of the stakeholders in that business is important for your selling a deal and keeping the client happy after the sale of the deal. And the whole emergence of account-based marketing or what have you is a reflection of exactly that. If you have one point of access or one relationship within an organization, you may close the deal. It depends on what you're selling, but it's more likely that you won't or that, that you're relying on that person to do your selling for you internally. And it will be tougher for you to keep that relationship long-term if you hit any snags or any bumps in the road. It's like anything else. You need coalitions behind you yeah. to sell and to maintain the relationship. And you need those different points of feedback because if you're getting one view of what the priorities of the business yeah, are, that's a good point. you're getting a very filtered view. Yeah, yeah. You're getting one dimension for sure, of the story. Let's, well, let's maybe this is a good, a decent transition too. In 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 terms of what you learned from your experience working in these large organizations, when you've gone off and started your own smaller, more nimble, what are some lessons that you've applied to your role as a startup entrepreneur and founder that you could trace back to? Maybe your historic experiences working with some of these larger orgs. I would say, oh gosh. There's plenty. First of all, I would say if there's something that I always did that my colleagues or contemporaries would always scratch their head and say, that's ridiculous. I don't know why you do that. I most often kept an open door policy with suppliers. And I was I would carve out time to listen to new pitches and to new vendors and to new products to make sure that I was at least opening my mind and my thinking to what how the landscape was changing so that I could help myself, my team, and my organization see around corners. So I would accept vendor calls. I wouldn't accept badgering, but right. I, and I would schedule meetings. And I would tell my people, you will treat them with respect, hmm. and you will take their calls. Hmm. And if they're not relevant, and you tell them they're not relevant, and they badger you, then have at them. Yeah. But if you are you know, professional and open and, and accessible, you're going to learn something that is going to make you better at your job. That's, that's interesting. Taking sales calls, a, a primary motivation being to learn. Yeah. Even if it's not relevant, I'm going to learn something that at some point mm. is going to make me better at decision making. So you'd mentioned this is how you would instruct the folks that work with you. Maybe zooming up a bit, I'd love to hear just more about your general leadership philosophy. I have to tell you, we were on, we did our call last week and you made a reference to something that I did not know about and I'm frantically Googling it while I'm in the, oh, that's, oh, Julie, that's a wonderful point. Excellent. But I didn't know what you were talking about. And you used the phrase, send the elevator back down. Mm, yes. And, and it's fun. I don't know if you recall, but I'm like, oh yeah, of course. Of course we all send the elevator back down. But could you talk a little bit about your philosophy as a leader? And then I'd love if you touch on those two points we chatted about on the phone. Humility and sending the elevator back down? Sure. My career, the successes, I mean, I've worked hard. I've worked like a dog most of my career. But, mm. but there's no question that my success has been largely contributed by people along the way that either gave me a chance, took a chance on me, mm. right, or that helped me open a door, mm. or in some cases called me into their office and said, 
What were you thinking? Come on, better than that. Get your head together. But they took the time to, to stop and tell me to, to knock it off or to step it up or to say, hey, if you're willing, I'll give you a shot at this, right? And I, I don't like to say I feel obligated to pay that forward, but there is a sense of obligation to pay that forward. And there's also a sense of delight in doing so. I mean, it's very rewarding to help others any way that I can because I, I, there's no way I would have had the career I've had and the life I've had if people hadn't done that for me. So when I say, send the elevator back down, send the elevator back down. Yeah. And then as far as the humility, and I think this is so true, especially in startup businesses, everybody's heard of founder syndrome, right? Your ego is not your amigo. It is not. And I have, Put a hashtag in front of that, though. Don't just, <laughs> don't just type it. I have seen... When, when I, what I have seen so often, even in the largest companies, really, uh, Christian, is very intelligent, very competent executives implode mm. when they're at the pinnacle of success mm. because their ego and their emotional interpersonal skills, their communication styles, those soft skills, everybody hates that phrase, right? Mm. Soft skills. They don't have the maturity to really be a leader. They know how to run a company, or they know how to build a product, or they know how to recognize an opportunity in a marketplace. But that's a far cry from being a leader and managing an organization and being able to mobilize disparate people when the going gets tough mm. and when you're being disrupted, whether that's from internal sources or external sources. And it is... I can't tell you how many companies, big companies and small companies I have been at, where you can see that it is down to a person or two people. This company is going to fail because that leader can't check themselves. It is far more prevalent than you think. Yeah, I, this is just such a, I think it's such an important topic. And I think I, I'm just now getting to know Julie, but I, you're probably picking up on some sense of this through the conversation. And, and in some of the pre-read we've sent around, but she's incredibly accomplished. We have skipped over a lot of chapters, and her in particular, it's hard to hear, it's hard to have somebody preach to you about humility who's not humble. It's like taking fitness advice from somebody who's out of shape. And I, this is an incredibly accomplished, but really humble, feet on the ground, executive and leader. And so I think it's particularly salient when somebody who's living it is able to talk about it how, what's your advice on how to cultivate that in yourself, right? Because clearly, I think some people are genetically predisposed to it more than others. But regardless of where you're at on that scale, what's the practice for recognizing that your ego is not your amigo and working on that and working on it with your team? How do you go about that? So there's a lot. First and foremost, I think you have to decide you have to, con like anything else, you have to decide that this is who you want to be or how you want to be and, and make that choice. And I mean, really decide, I don't want to be an egotistical leader. Mm -hmm. I want to be a, a servant leader. I want to be yeah. that kind of person. And then and commit to it. I mean, it's not just talk it, right? Yeah. Decide it and, and then make the choices around it. And then you have to build in flags or triggers for yourself. If I come out of a meeting... Sometimes I'll be in the car and I'll be driving somewhere and I think, you were talking 70% of the time. 
Why didn't you shut up and listen? You should ask more questions than you answer. How do you think about the role of accountability in that? Who, like, how you bring other people into helping hold you accountable? In every company, every role I've ever had, I have at least two mentors that I choose very carefully because I know that they'll be very tough on me. And one of them is always someone who is a direct report uh, that I want them to tell me exactly how they see it and the difference between what I say and what they hear, everybody else hears and what is said around. Now, to be clear. One of your direct reports? Yes. Okay, so you pick one of your direct reports to serve in the capacity as a mentor to help hold you. Okay, it's different. It's the 360 loop, right? Yeah. If you want to know how you're leading, you better ask somebody you're supposedly leading. And so it's making those conscious choices, right? And and when I choose a mentor, I'm very deliberate about it. I mean, I build an annual calendar mm. and I put myself in situations with that mentor that I know are uncomfortable. I'll ask them to have me lead a project that they know I am completely incompetent to lead or work with a particular team that they know is really difficult to work with huh. and then give me feedback on how successfully I was able to galvanize the team or to yeah. build consensus or to move a project forward, etc. And it forces you into conversations that you just don't want to have, but you need to have them. Hmm. And then you need to decide you're going to act on it or not. That's so good. That's so good. I've got two Two more kind of high-level questions, and we can camp out on them. We can zip through them and get to Q&A, maybe see where it goes. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask about your observations on the future of retail and where and how technology is impacting that. Many of uh, the folks in this room work in or for or with businesses that are tangential to retail. So they're either building and selling marketing products, sales tools, things of that nature, and then some that are probably actually living the e-commerce stream themselves. So just view from 30,000 feet, would love to hear some of your observations about what you expect, what we should expect in the future. Uh, I think retail's not going anywhere, obviously. And whether that's, we say brick and mortar, is that dying versus online? Right. Consumers don't say online. They don't say e-commerce versus brick and mortar. They don't even use those terms. Retail is retail. They either shop or they don't. They don't think about the channels that we sell. In. The channel construct is the way we distribute product. It's more about distribution than it is and, and the way we market than it is the actual retail experience or the purchasing experience. So it's, it's not going anywhere. It will always be a part of our, of our social structure, no matter where we are the world. And I think as we I think as we increase in affluence and the disparity between the haves and the have not the I guess I would say the landscape of who is purchasing and what they're purchasing will change. I think we're shifting more towards social responsibility. We talked a smidge about that earlier on. So some of the types of retail and the expectations for social stewardship will change from the consumer's expectations of that. But I think that's also not just retail, I think that's across all enterprise. What I would say is data and data-driven decisioning in retail is becoming ever more prevalent, but there's a fine line between having access to more data and being able to actually leverage it. Yeah. And so there, the, that's one of the big challenges facing retailers today. The other is the, the, the new entrants, the new market entrants in the e-com pure plays, they struggle as much with brick and mortar, and we have all seen they're starting to open up brick and mortar. Yeah, of course. Consumers want both experiences. They absolutely do. And they like to touch and feel products before they purchase. Uh, most products, certainly not non-commodity products. And so there's a place for both. But if you walk into an Amazon store, 
it's laughable to say this is clearly an e-commerce pure play trying to do brick and mortar retail and doing it badly. Hmm. And if you walk into, uh, if you go to walmart.com, you can see this is clearly a brick and mortar store trying to do e-commerce and doing it very badly. So they're just very different environments. I think both will get better at that over time and making it see, feel seamless too. But those that don't, that continue to not change, they will, they won't survive. Where is Amazon vulnerable? If you and I were going to go start a company tomorrow with the intent of taking a bite out of Amazon, like where do you think the soft tissue is with their business model? I think Amazon could be, I think in the financial services space. Hmm. Target, when I was at Walmart, most people don't realize Target was a very small company when I started at, at Walmart. And it was their, the way they handled their private label brands and their collaborations with designers and their financial services that helped them grow to stardom and frankly helped them kick our rear ends. And Amazon needs to master financial services. They haven't done that. I wonder if their scale might, they might be legislated away from that and that might be their Achilles heel. But they haven't been legislated away from anything yet. Because so that, I... did happen, that, did, that, that did happen with Walmart, right? I mean, Walmart made push in financial services and had their wings clipped a little bit. So there are people paying attention, mm -hmm. at least. Oh, that's good. That's good. Thanks for indulging that. A lot of young-ish leaders in the room, many first-time CEOs, first-time members of executive teams. We've talked a little bit about big themes of navigating politics, paying it forward, engineering humility into your personal operating system. Any other just high-level thoughts around advice to young leaders in particular as they embark on into the unknown? Uh, I would say for young leaders, I, I, I do a bit of investing myself, and one of the big, a big flag for me is I'll ask co-founders or CEOs, what have you learned in the last six month about, months about your customer that has caused you to change or shift or pivot either your go-to-market or your product development? roadmap. And if they say nothing, it's, it's certainly a flag, hmm. right? Hmm. And if you think about the fact that, I mean, I want to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm guessing that there's probably not anybody in the room that wouldn't say that some external force, whether it's technology advancements or whether it's economic forces or whether it's competitive set or whether it's weather or coronavirus or something, right? Hmm. Supply chain, something happens externally from your business that affects your business at least four times a year. So if you don't know something that is impacting your customer you're not paying at least four times a year, then you're not in touch. Yeah. And you're probably a bit too much in the zone of, I know what I'm doing. I've got this. I know what they need. I've got this. And if you're not listening to your customer, hmm. someone is. Yeah, that's an, that would be an interesting rubric just to deploy internally. Once a quarter, what has happened that we're not acknowledging or that we're not addressing or that we're not modifying our game plan somehow to address? I think that's great. That's a great way to end. Thank you, Julie. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. Speaker Series Rewind is brought to you by Hi Alpha, a venture studio that designs and builds B2B SaaS companies. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts wherever you listen. You can also subscribe or find additional content at highalpha.com slash podcast. We'd really appreciate any reviews. It'll help us reach more awesome people like you. Catch you next time.